my generation and my, my parents and my grandparents and, and whatnot, they were slaves to the man, they were slaves to capitalism. And it became the way that you were disconnected from nature, you were disconnected from your world because you were defined by monetary success, you were defined by your title and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, like anything in life, it's it's a balance. If you're going to partake in this modern world, you have to earn dollars and those dollars have to be spent on bills and consumption and food and education and all that stuff. But if you can remain grounded and focused on uh, keeping that balance in life, I think that's what a lot of people are striving for and nature can provide that. Welcome to This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature, where we introduce you to guests who are working to save our natural world and then offer them a chance to take on a personal challenge to make their lives more joyful and fulfilling through exploring their values. Today, I'm here talking to Chris O'Brien. Chris, how are you? I'm great, Eugene. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. It's really, really interesting that I'm having you on this week because we were just talking about this before we started the recording. But actually this week for work, I am going to a conference on food waste here in Hawaii. And then it just so happens that I'm talking to you who is doing a lot of work in food waste. (laughs) So yeah, I can fill you with a whole bunch of information. So you seem really educated when you're talking to these food food waste guys. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome because that's <laughs> that's kind of the goal. I mean, Hawaii has this huge tourist sector, right? We've got tons of tourists just pouring through here all the time. And just from that, we've got so much food waste that comes out of these restaurants and things. And just because of the impact that it has on climate, the government is really looking for ways to take that food waste and to just do something productive with it. So that's what this conference is going to be all about. So we're hoping to be part of the solution. Yeah, I'd love to hear how it goes, actually. We've had some limited dealings with Hawaii and certain restaurant groups in Hawaii. It's a unique industry and landscape there in terms of food waste management because the infrastructure is is limited there in terms of available technologies and cost of processing and all that sort of thing. So I'd be really interested to hear what their plans are and what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you just think about like the land space, right? The amount of land that we have for garbage in Hawaii is so low that it's like anything you can do to reduce that. And if you can actually take that and actually make something productive, if you can get energy out of it or something like that, then it it can be a huge help to a place like Hawaii. But before we get too far, I should probably introduce a little bit more about who you are and what you do. So you're the founder and the CEO of Hungry Giant. It's a clean tech business commercializing waste management and recycling equipment. So if I have it right, you're using new technologies to turn food waste into useful, reusable resources. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've I've been involved in the waste industry for going on 15 years. Obviously, you can tell I don't have an American accent. So even though I'm based here, I'm from down under. Uh And I... I started my business down in Australia when I when I really saw opportunities in waste to divert plastics from landfill, and it was a real pain point for me with with one of my first jobs that I ever had. Um, and my business grew in Australia. I found my way into food waste management, and I've always thought of food waste as the holy grail of waste management. If you take food waste out of the trash, that reduces leachate, it reduces methane, and and the biggest thing is food waste is a valuable resource. Until it's waste, 
we're consuming it. That's how much value we, we place in it. We're consuming all of that until we, de- we deem it waste. And so it kind of be- became my, my MO, my mission to build a company and have technology that can turn food waste into a, fa- a valuable resource. And I guess we can kind of drill into you know, some of the market drivers out there in terms of oversupply of compost and government mandates and where industry is heading. But that's how I got into waste. I, initially, I invented a, a technology that um, crushed and, and melted down styrofoam, which is a little bit off topic, but that was how I got into, into the waste industry. And I, the concept of dealing with waste at the point where the waste is generated mm-hmm. intrigued me. And I think that concept has grown. A lot of companies now are compacting cardboard and separating plastics and, and uh, you know, they're starting to deal with food waste. Gotcha. So you kind of started in other aspects of the recycling industry, but something drove you to food waste. Yeah, food waste is um, third largest emitter of methane gases in landfills. And what I observed when I was getting involved with plastic recycling was that the biggest limiter to recycling any kind of commodity, whether it be a soft plastic, a hard plastic or a cardboard or anything, the biggest limiting factor is contamination from food waste. And it just surprised me that there was very limited regulation framework out there that would um, prevent or even incentivize financially or support businesses to do something other than throw it in the trash and just mix it. Because the recyclability of that stuff that would normally be recyclable is eliminated. Mm-hmm. And so everything ends up going to a big hole in the ground. And and then it you know creates gases and all the nasty stuff that we all know about. Right. And so that was kind of how that was kind of how I saw an opportunity. I thought there's really something we can do here and applying my experience and my success with Hungry Giant when we were involved in plastics and the the idea of source separation. So where the waste is generated, that's where you deal with it. That's where it's most logistically effective, less trucks, less emissions, less odor, all that sort of stuff. That was the concept to to set up the business in a direction of developing machines and equipment and technology that can process food waste on site. Gotcha. Did did all of this happen after you were here in the States or, or did you start this in Australia and then come stateside? So yeah, started in Australia and I had a gentleman reach out to me from the US who had seen my technology and he was intrigued. So he actually uh, encouraged me to open up Hungry Giant in the US and he ran the business up until 2017 and and then I moved here 2018 and he retired and, and, and off we went. Very nice. Huh. I, I've never compared the numbers on food waste between America and Australia. I've seen some numbers between America and a lot of parts of Asia where they've really done a lot. I've heard like Korea and Japan have done a lot to really reduce food waste. But I know that America, you know, we have huge amounts of food waste. Is there a big difference between America and Australia there? There, there is a big difference. Obviously, population is the obvious thing. You know, I live in Texas and the whole of Australia is on par with just the state of Texas. And so, you know, Australia, just by pure population, is completely dwarfed volume-wise when it comes to food waste and just waste in general. The US, I think, you know, the cost of hauling and removing and composting food waste is around $2 billion a year in the US. The biggest thing I see with the US, though, in terms of its wastefulness, mm-hmm. is that uh, there's no strong incentive for businesses to 
divert food waste from landfill. It's out of sight, out of mind. I mean, to give you an example, where I was from in Australia is Sydney, and mm-hmm. Sydney's a, obviously a major metropolis. The average landfill rate per tonne, when I left, it was around 270. It's probably over 300 now mm-hmm. a tonne for trash. And so businesses had a strong incentive to say, hey, what's the heaviest waste that I can take out of my trash and divert it from landfill? And so by virtue of landfill levies and expensive disposal costs, the market in Australia was what I call the early adopters, just out of out of necessity. Right. And and so that really validated the market for us. The US is a different beast because the average disposal cost in the US is around $50 a ton. So there's not a lot of incentive for businesses to say, well, hang on, I, you know, I'm, I'm spending $50 a ton, I need, I need a lot of food waste to justify investing in your equipment. And I need a lot of food waste to justify having someone to use the equipment. And then what do I do with the output? And so that the customers we're dealing with now are very sustainability focused um, organizations, government uh-huh. entities, corporations, and they are the early adopters in the US. And they're, they're certainly leading the trend and they see where things are heading. And they're also making themselves accountable to their their customers. You know, they've got the, that corporate social responsibility at the fore. Right. So in America, then, I mean, what percentage of our food waste goes to landfill? I mean, are we, are we talking 98% more? I don't know the exact percentage. I probably should have researched that before we spoke. But I mean, composting is certainly growing. And there are states like California and others that are mandating commercial volumes of food waste to be removed from the trash. And so, you know, it's a $2 billion a year, give or take at the moment, mostly controlled by composters or haulers. And sometimes they are just two separate entities, you've got a hauler that collects it, and then they take it to a facility. But there's some really interesting stuff happening in the industry. There's a lot of pressure on infrastructure providers at a composting level. These facilities are expanding as fast as they can expand because of these government mandates. And they can't keep up with capacity because they've got to build these windrow facilities or anaerobic facilities within a, you know, close geographical proximity to, you know, major cities. And once those are at capacity, then you've got to drive that same rotting food waste further out of town. And then that increases your cost per pound and, and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, the economic model and the commodity drivers of, of food waste, it's going to be an interesting space. And so, you know, this is where we think we come in in a way where we're not the only solution and we're not, mm-hmm. we're not the solution that can fix the whole, you know, the problem in its entirety, mm-hmm. but we can be part of the solution. Right. Interesting. Okay. So I guess that would be a good point to get into then. How is Hungry Giant helping with the food waste crisis? We've kind of danced around it a little bit, but what is it that Hungry Giant has that is helping people with food waste? So we design, manufacture, install, repair, maintain a pretty unique bit of gear. It's a food waste biodehydration system. And what we're doing is installing these stainless steel boxes, we call them giants. We install the giants at the back of house or back back of kitchen and any food scrapings from plates or any prep waste from back of house um, thrown into these machines. And 
the operating principle of the technology is we're not sending it down the drain so that it's the city's problem. We're not sending it down the drain so that it can be a grease trap pump out cost. Mm -hmm. We are dealing with the waste on site. And what we're doing is heating that waste up. We're extracting the moisture mm -hmm. and we're biologically stabilizing that material. So we're heating it up to around 185 degrees for a period of time. And, uh, and then the inert biomass after about seven to 24 hours, depending on moisture content and size and all that sort of stuff, anywhere from seven to 24 hours later, you have an accelerated stabilized biomass that is more closely aligned to a plant growth enhancer fertilizer type product than it is a compost. So these boxes, these giants that you call them, so these are basically just like an appliance that you have, kind of like a dishwasher or something like that, right? Correct. It's, it's, it is an appliance and, and the vision for, for us is, is that one day commercial restaurants, when they're setting up and they're ordering their, their commercial ovens and their cooktops and their fryers, they will put in a hungry giant system to deal with food waste as a standardized and expected way of managing food waste. But yeah, in terms of it being a stainless steel box, it is a literally a stainless steel box and we build them from small sizes. In fact, I think we have one of the smallest commercial sized units on the market starting at around 70 pounds per cycle. And we go all the way up to 3000 pounds per cycle. Hmm. And we can increase that up to 6000 pounds with our grinders and dewatering technology that we have huh. as well. But the basic premise is you have no consumables, you're not sending any sludge down the drain. You have no issues with suspended solids or bio-oxygen demand or chemical oxygen, oxygen demand. You're simply loading the food waste in. You're shutting the door like a dishwasher, as you said. Mm -hmm. You're pressing a button and the machine does its thing. And then essentially what Mother Nature does in 12, 12, 12 weeks, we're doing in you know 12 hours. Right. Okay. So what's the end product like? What, do you, what are you getting that's coming out of the end of this thing? You're getting a 70 to 90% volume reduced soil amendment that has the uh -huh. appearance of, of dirt. And it's it's very interesting. Obviously, the, the consistency and the color changes depending on the type of materials that you're putting in. If you've got a lot of fats, it tends to come out darker. If you're putting in a lot of starches, it comes out lighter. You know, if you've got if you've got fruit and vegetables and seeds, it has very different consistency. But overall, it comes out as a biologically stabilized inert um, soil amendment that you can apply directly to your compost pile, directly to your gardens if you blend it. Mm -hmm. And that dry dirt has no pathogen risk. That that dry material is able to be land applied if the restaurant or if the hotel or the golf club or the whatever the, the facility is, if they have grounds, corporate campuses, they can directly apply that with their greens department. I think the biggest feedback we hear is that it's volume reduced and stabilized. So what happens to like the, the larger solids and things, things like bones and that kind of stuff? Does it process those as well? It does. So in the early days, again, this is some, some funny stories, but back in the early days, I was only telling one of our team members yesterday, I had some, you know, some mechanical engineer. I mean, you're a mechanical engineer. I had some mechanical engineering nightmares back in the early days, sitting in the loading docks, trying to work out how I could fix, you know, these, these issues. And one of them was bones going into the units. And so dealing with FOG, so fats, oil and grease, dealing with bones in particular, we had to engineer around that. And so, yeah, the machines do handle bones. They break up, they dry out. If you have larger bones, we have bio grinders that we grind the material before it goes in. And so you get this consistent fraction size when it comes out. Huh. 
So is this something that would be reasonable to have in a home or do you guys target more commercial businesses, restaurants, hotels and that kind of thing? It's it's mostly commercial and industrial. We are working on a residential unit. We're not sure how quickly we're going to get that to market, but we're working on a residential unit uh, because I think there's a there's a large motivation at the consumer level for people that want to be able to take responsibility for food waste. And they know that by putting it down their disposal in their sink, they know they're just, they're just making it someone else's problem. It's one of those out of sight, out of mind things. So people are generally pretty proactive at a residential level. Businesses are too, but it's, it's a growing market and it's, you know, changing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like, like you were saying before, there is kind of a little bit of growing pressure in that industry to deal with food waste and, and to not just be dumping it in the garbage can because it can be reused as a resource if you use it well. That's the biggest thing is that, you know, at a high level, at a visionary level, Eugene, people need to not look at food as a waste. It is absolutely a resource. It has energy contained within it. Mm-hmm. And we need to use that energy and use those nutrients. And so, you know, part of why we're advocates for dehydration more so than digestion. And you, you may learn some of this at at the conference in Hawaii, but yeah. there's a lot of words thrown around that, that the general public maybe doesn't know about and it's digestion versus dehydration versus you know anaerobic versus aerobic. You know, when you look at making compost, mm-hmm. compost is comprised of a number of different things. You don't just digest food waste and you have compost. There's minerals, there's you know, amino acids, there's all sorts of stuff that come into, you know, making compost, you have to add browns and and you have to have carbon and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the interesting thing about dehydration, as opposed to to compost at a commercial level, is it's giving you maximum nutrient density, maximum volume reduction, and it's giving you multiple reuse options at the back end. Compost, food waste that's turned into compost is only ever going to be compost. Right. Whereas the material that comes from from our process can be used as a compost slash soil amendment, mm-hmm. can be reintroduced into a microbial environment, and that's no issue. Mm-hmm. It can be used as energy from waste because mm-hmm. it has such a high calorific value. It can be incinerated, it can be gasified. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have customers, we have major cruise lines that have our technology on their vessels. And, you know, these cruise lines don't get a good rap for their sustainability stuff, you know, of late, but 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 we're seeing a huge shift there and a huge change. And um, just one customer alone, I think we're, mm-hmm. we're up to diverting about 6.6 million pounds a year of food waste from being discharged overboard which contains microplastics and can pose threat to animal life. So it's a good feeling to know that, you know, the technology that we've got not only is creating tangible, real results out there, Mm -hmm. but the output has multiple reuse options. And that's a big key that I think the industry is kind of missing at the moment. Yeah. I didn't even think about that industry. The second you said cruise ships, I was like, yeah, that would actually be brilliant. That would be a perfect use of of these kinds of systems and one that i didn't think of i mean the obvious ones are you know like you mentioned hotels and restaurants and things but cruise ships that's a that's a fantastic place to use some of these things what what are some other food service industries or what are some other industries that you've seen using these well really we're we're kind of industry agnostic it's anywhere that has commercial volumes of food waste Mm -hmm. and so we've had we've had you know u.s 
military bases in Sasebo, Japan, install our technology. We've had a machine in the White House. We've had machines on vessels and cruise lines. We've had machines in remote mines in Peru where they have, you know, 3,000 man camps and they're, they're up at a high altitude and they can't cost effectively, you know, repatriate the food waste down the mountain. So they want to process the food waste up there. So, you know, anywhere that has a commercial volume of food waste, and I guess anywhere that has a sustainability objective with diverting food waste from their trash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all really, really cool applications that didn't immediately come to mind. But yeah, as you list them off, it's just like, oh, man, that's, that's brilliant. That can be really, really helpful in a lot of situations. Yeah, it's crazy that, you know, the, some of the opportunities that, that come across, you know, our table are, are incredible. Remote bases in Antarctic and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, anywhere where there's a human consuming food, chances are there's going to be some sort of food waste. Yeah. And with the growing population, I'm, I'm imagining that's, that's not getting any less anytime soon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so let's see, you were, you were talking about having all of these being mostly in, in a lot of commercial applications and things, but I imagine you probably spend some time thinking about home food waste as well. I mean, I know you had mentioned potentially having a home system coming out at some point, but I wonder if you had recommendations for, for listeners who are listening right now and want to say like, well, that's great for business owners and things, but I wonder if there's any ways that I can eliminate household food waste in my home. I mean, it starts with conscious buying. You know, it starts with being really thoughtful when you're grocery shopping. And, you know, it comes down to conscious buying and conscious consumption. That's the first step, I think. And we all fail at that at times. I mean, I, you know, how many times I've opened up the, the fridge and there's a rotten tomato and, and I have to throw it out. So none of us are perfect, but I think conscious consumption is the first thing. Little trick, I was telling one of my colleagues today, actually, a little trick I've found that really works for me. You know, the, the drawers in the bottom of your fridge are normally reserved for fruit and vegetables. Yeah. I reverse that. So I put all the sauces and condiments in those drawers because they have a pretty long shelf life when uh -huh. they're refrigerated. And I put all of the perishable food and meat on the top two or three shelves. And so every time you open that fridge, you're looking at it and you can, okay, we can make a meal out of that or I'm thinking of that. So just little things like that from a consumption perspective, I think can help how much food waste is generated in the home. Yeah. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before, but now that you mention it, it seems obvious. Yeah. A lot of the things that go bad in my refrigerator come from that bottom drawer, vegetables and fruits and things. And yeah, yeah just by having them more in your face, it reminds you that, oh yeah, I got to eat this. Yeah. And you'll also go and reach for a cucumber instead of something that you shouldn't be reaching for. So it's, it's a win-win. Yeah. Another very, very good point. Where can listeners go if they want to learn more about Hungry Giant Recycling? They can visit our website, HungryGiantRecycling.com. Perfect. There's Perfect. plenty of information on there. Excellent. Is there is there anything, any other things about the Hungry Giant systems that you want people to know about? No, not really. I mean, I think we covered a lot of stuff here today, Eugene. I think there's a lot of heavy lifting that needs to happen in industry, and we're, we're working on that. We're embarking on that now, and we're engaging with government. We're engaging with USDA and the Ant Planimal Health Inspection Service because we need to create a framework to allow businesses incentives, to allow for businesses to see that, you know, from an educational perspective, that they know that there are solutions out there to better manage food waste. 
So it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I feel like, like I said before, I feel like this is a technology that's just going to be more and more needed as we have more and more people on the planet and more and more mouths to feed. Yeah, that's that's what I'm banking on, man. <laughs> so let's see. If you don't mind, we have a process that we go through on this show to offer you an opportunity to, at your own option, act on one of your own environmental values. And uh, most of our guests usually end up really, really enjoying it. So I wonder, for the second half of this show, would you be willing to, to go through the process? Yeah. Perfect. I'm, I'm open. Excellent. The first step of this process is to ask, do you care about the environment? Of course I do, yes. <laughs> yeah, I feel like given given the work that you're doing, that it seems like you have some care about the environment. Now, yeah, I mean, you and I were talking about that before we started recording, you know, and and it sounds it sounds very cliche, but mm -hmm. you know, I kind of humbly refer to myself as a environmentalist capitalist or a capitalist environmentalist because you know I'm inherently cognizant of the need to make money to be able to sustain a business. But at the same time, what gets me out of bed every day is the fact that I can get up knowing that I'm having an impact and doing some good stuff. So it sounds cliche, but it's it's definitely a driving factor for me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I wonder, when you think about the environment, what do you generally think of? Like the first thing that comes to mind when you think of environment, do you have any you know, specific experiences or memories of environment nature something that that comes to mind when you think of environment yeah i i um i love walking on the beach i mean being an aussie we lived right on on a beach in a town called cronulla south uh -huh. of sydney and whenever i used to walk along the beach it used to really upset me because you'd just be taken aback by sand dunes and beautiful sunsets and rolling waves crashing in and you just you know you're in the moment and then you look down and there's a Snickers wrapper that just washed up under your feet. And it just, it just steals that moment away from you. Right. And so whenever I walked on the beach and, and I do this with my kids now, if even, even if we walk down on Lake Austin, which is not often with, you know, three young daughters under the age of 10, but right. when we manage to do things like that, um, I'll always in front of them, I'll make sure I pick up trash and put it in my pocket. And they're always questioning me, Daddy, why are you picking up that dirty trash? Why are you don't touch it? Like, why are you doing that? And then they see me put it in the trash, you know? And so I've always thought to myself, if if just everyone had that attitude, we don't have to spend a whole day picking up trash. You don't have to have these huge cleanup effects. But if you just during the course of your day, you notice something that doesn't belong in nature, just pick it up. Yeah. There's no energy. There's no effort. You're still breathing. You're still doing, you know, you're still living and there's no exertion. It just becomes a subconscious thing. And so now my kids do it. I see them do it. We walk huh. along and they'll pick up a bottle cap and, and they'll put it in my pocket, but they'll still pick it up, you know? <laughs> and how does that make you feel? How does it make you feel to know that you have kind of led them to do this in their own lives? It's good. I mean, you know, I think we are merely just bits of bacteria floating on a blue dot to, to get sort of close to Carl Sagan. But, you know, we're custodians of this place and we can do something. And even if you think picking up that one Snickers wrapper has no impact, it does. If every person on this earth picked up one Snickers wrapper or one wrapper, it's a lot of trash. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't solve the problem of landfills and doesn't solve the problem of overconsumption and all those sorts of things. But uh, we all have a role to play and we have to 
stay pragmatic. And the thing that upsets me is that we don't care for this this beauty of, of, of nature, of what we have around us, especially where you live. I mean, Hawaii is one of the most beautiful places in the world. So, yeah, I like to do little things like that, that, you know, when I see my kids do it, it's very heartwarming and encouraging to know that, you know, when I depart this earth one day, there's some sort of a legacy or impact there because I'll hopefully teach their kids to pick up a couple of bits of trash or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If I had to describe my read on on as you talk about this and just seeing you talk about it, I, I feel like there's almost a sense of, of pride there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think if you look at human necessity and, you know, it's it's financial security, roof over your head, food in your belly. And, and once you achieve those things in life, it then becomes about, well, what's my purpose? What's my bigger purpose? You know, anyone can go and make money. Yeah. But, you know, you've got to have a bigger purpose and you've got to, you've got to do something to leave the world in a better place. Right. Getting very deep here, Eugene, very deep. <laughs> well, we do like to get into emotions on this show. We find that when we get past the facts and the figures and the actual effect that you have when you pick up that wrapper and we actually talk about the emotions that are associated with doing those kinds of actions that it actually makes people feel more connected to the people they're talking to to the planet it makes them you know go that little extra step to create that emotional connection as well and that having that can be really really important in in guiding people to wanting to do more so i'm really glad to hear you say that you know i think it's important that you know i feel like society to a degree especially the younger generation maybe a little bit younger than me i'm edging mm -hmm. 40 very connected to purpose mm -hmm. not being a slave to the man and and kind of prioritizing the environment and their lifestyle and i think you know my generation and my my parents and my grandparents and and whatnot they were slaves to the man they were slaves to capitalism and it became the way that you were disconnected from nature you were disconnected from your world because you were defined by monetary success you were defined by your title and and, and all that sort of stuff and so you know like anything in life it's it's a balance if you're going to partake in this modern world you have to earn dollars and those dollars have to be spent on bills and and, and consumption and food and education and all that stuff but if you can remain grounded and focused on uh, keeping that balance in life, I think that's what a lot of people are striving for. And nature can provide that. I mean, if you've ever had a day where you're just frustrated or you, you know, you're feeling anxious or you're feeling stressed, there's nothing better than walking out and without shoes and putting your feet on the ground and just grounding yourself or going for a walk and just sucking in that fresh air. And it's so upsetting that, you know, to a degree, we're taking that that wonderful experience for granted to some extent by polluting it, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but but there's definitely a trend, and hopefully, younger generations coming through will will continue to prioritize connection and, and that emotional connection with the their surroundings and and their relationships, and we all find that equilibrium. Yeah, yeah. So now. Now I'm listening to you and as I hear you talk about, you know, that 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 sense of of stewardship over the planet, getting those feelings of of heartwarming, feeling more connection to the people around you and the pride that that comes with it. I wonder 
if there is something that based on those feelings that you could think of that you could do to act on those feelings, to create those feelings more. And we have a few different conditions that we put on it. So the first is that it doesn't have to be the biggest thing. It's not about doing the most important thing that you can think of. It's not about trying to solve all pollution problems overnight. It's not about the size. It's about doing something that continues those feelings, things that are meaningful to you, to act on something that you care about. So it has to be a new behavior, so something you're not already doing. Continue to pick up trash at the beach, but (laughs) we want to add something new that you haven't experienced yet. And then preferably something measurable so that we can kind of gauge, you know, when you've completed it. And then something that you do yourself. So it can't just be like, you know, telling other people to do things. It can't just be getting your kids to do something. You have to do it with them. By all means, invite them to do it with you or something. But it has to be something that leaves the world better and something that you do with your own hands. Is there anything that you can think of that you could do? And again, this is totally optional. We won't we, we don't force anybody to do anything on this show, but we encourage giving it a try. Yeah, I, I'm I'm open to a challenge. I guess I'm struggling for ideas because my default my default go to is what could, what action can I take to to you know pick up trash or reduce you know the problem that I see. It's a visible problem. I'm I'm a problem and solution kind of guy, mm-hmm. and so I'm just th- sitting here kind of thinking on the spot. You know, is it an is it embarking on some sort of educational journey? Is it something where you know I can maybe create some, you know flyers for households and just mm-hmm. educate people on hey here's what you can do with your food waste even if you don't have equipment even if you right. don't have a, a barrel composter or something i don't know i might have to get you back to you on this challenge i, I want to do something but i have got i don't know if i've got it nailed down right now yeah well let's see i think that some of the things that often help people is again it it's just has to be something that that leaves the world a little bit better than it was. And it doesn't have to be something you do forever. If you just want to try doing something once or twice, or you want to see if you can maintain doing something for a week. Joshua Spodek, the creator of the original This Sustainable Life podcast, he embarked on this whole journey because he had originally challenged himself to just for one week, not buy any food in packaging. That was his original challenge to himself. And he spent like six months just thinking of like, oh, how am I going to do this? What can I buy? What kind of recipes? And it was like looking up recipes. And then one day just went, you know what? I just have to do it from now until next week, no foods with packaging. And so it immediately decided everything he ate from that day on for at the beginning, you know, it was just like, you know, apples and, and cucumbers and things like that. But as he started to do it and started to look for recipes and things, he started to discover the things that he could make through that challenge. And he ended up just continuing that. And it's, I think he's, he's in like year six now of doing that. It, it wow. evolved into this. Yeah. It evolved into That's a incredible thing that all came from, you know, just trying to do it for that one week. He ended up just enjoying it so much and feeling like the food that he was getting was fresher and healthier that he was just like, I'm just going to keep going. That's cool. So again, yeah, it doesn't have to be something like, all right, I'm never going to eat meat ever again for the rest of my life. It's sometimes it's just like, if I just start doing this maybe once or twice and I've always wanted to try it, you can start with something like that. 
Well, my wife is vegetarian, and so maybe maybe that's what I need to do because she's always angling for me to reduce my my meat consumption. Uh-huh. So you know, it's hard living in Austin, Texas, when you're surrounded by Ooh. barbecue joints. Yeah, but maybe that's a challenge that's realistic, and 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 I can I can do that. I mean, that she'd be very happy with me if I if I committed to a week or two of no meat. Huh? Yeah, and I, I would be curious to know. You know, you've got a family too. I'm curious to know how that would affect the relationships around you as well. Like, would you end up, would this be something that would end up making you feel those same feelings of, of, of pride and connection, maybe change the relationship with your wife for the better? I don't, I don't know. I'm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's a given that vegetarianism is kind of inherently healthier. Mm -hmm. We eat too much meat these days and I do try and cut it back and, we eat, we alternate meals and whatnot, but I've always been predominantly a typical Aussie guy. I love my, my sausages. I love my bacon and eggs. I like a hamburger every now and again, sure. you know, but I think maybe that's, that's a challenge that's been on my mind for a long time, purely because my wife's been a vegetarian for, I'm going to say close to 12 years now. Wow. Um, and it's difficult too, with kids trying to have nutrient dense meals for her. And at the same time, giving our kids, you know, and they want to have the standard stuff, you know, they want to have their sure. meat and veggies and whatnot. But maybe that's a realistic challenge I could get back to you on and, and commit to a couple of weeks of. Absolutely. All right. So the last eat, clean eating. Yeah. So the last step would be to make it a smart goal. So specific, measurable, achievable, realistic time bound. So like, how much are you going to do it for? How long are you going to do it for? How many times a week are you going to do it for? Things like that. What do you, what do you think? Okay. I think, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of have days where I don't eat meat anyway. So it wouldn't be like, oh, two days a week, I'm not going to do this. I think I'd be more inclined to have a defined period and kind of monitor how I feel too, because, you know, I'd like to see how it affects my, my blood sugars and how it affects my, my gut microbiome and how I feel. I think, I think just switching it up for, for a couple of weeks would be, would be a challenge and, and, you know, is it going to fulfill me? I'm a big dude, six foot four. I'm a big guy. Yeah. Be good to see how I handle it over yeah. a solid two week period. Perfect. All right. So no meat for two weeks. Doesn't have to start immediately, but I'd be really, really interested to hear how it goes. How long do you think it would be until you've, you've done the two weeks and then, you know, kind of been able to process it and have a meaning, a meaningful experience that you'd want to talk about? Yeah, I think if we if we scheduled another chat in maybe three weeks, I'm, I'm ready to do this. Wow, you've psyched, you, you psyched me up here, Eugene. <laughs> I've got to commit to this. Really? All yeah. right, all right. So maybe aiming for a second conversation here before Christmas, then. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I need to drop a few pounds anyway, so this this all works. It's a win win. There you go. It's a win 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 win. Good for the environment. Good for you. Maybe good for the relationship with the wife. Good for the yeah. good for the gut there, and I have you know I have to admit I feel like you know psychologically growing up meat's always been the star on the plate vegetables have always been the the backup show you know mm-hmm. and it's a, it's it's a different psychology and I've got to get my head around that my wife has certainly done that and done it well but one of my concerns is it feels like and and again you, your listeners may shoot me down here but cooking vegetarian meals just seems a lot more complicated a lot harder to get flavorful 
you know, vegetable dishes. It just seems like a lot of work to get. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm happy to be corrected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know that it definitely, there's an adjustment period for sure. There's definitely a time where you have to, because I'm, I'm not vegetarian myself, but I am very, very low meat and I try to make as many vegetarian dishes. And at the beginning, you're just like, I don't know what to make other than salad. And <laughs> <laughs> it does, it does take some time. But yeah, I, I'm excited. So many mushroom dishes. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's do this for sure. Fantastic. All right. So then in another three weeks or so, I'll reach out to you to schedule a second chat. We already heard about HungryGiantRecycling.com, where the listeners can go to learn more about your Hungry Giant waste systems. Are there any social media places that you want people to be able to find you online? Yeah, we have we have book page. We're on LinkedIn as well. Um we, we're not typically fantastic in marketing and hence why I'm talking to you and, and, and trying to raise the profile. But they can find us and reach out to us on LinkedIn, Facebook and, and our website. Perfect. Are there any final notes you want the listeners to hear before we wrap up? No, I'm all good. I feel like, yeah, we covered a lot of good grounds. It was a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Chris O'Brien, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Eugene. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to talking to you again. Hey guys, Eugene here from Verdant Growth and host of This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature. I've been doing this podcast for a few months now, and I could use some help. I just don't have the time to edit episodes like I did during the pandemic, and I've had to hire an editor. I don't have enough to pay them for as many episodes as I'd like to do per month. If you're interested in supporting me and my podcast, try donating, one time or monthly. Even one dollar helps. I love doing this show, but I can't do it as much as I'd like without your help. If you can't donate, just hit that subscribe button or tell your friends. Me and the rest of the world could use your help. Let's work together to make this planet we call home a great place through sustainability. Thank you.